Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash good plan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The Bowery Boys, episode 104, CBGBs. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with another solo show. We are going back. Well, actually, we're not going back very far at all, actually, to just over 36 years ago to a busted old hole in the wall that just happens to be one of the most important spots for modern American music history. That would be the nightclub CBGBs. Now, CBGBs stands for Country, Blue, Grass, and Blues. But very little of those forms of music were actually ever played here. Instead, the venue bred the stars of American punk rock and new wave. Artists like Blondie, The Talking Heads, and The Ramones, of course. But this isn't just a show for music aficionados. I'll give you a little window into New York City during this time period, the 1970s. A dreary, very uneasy time in the city's history. It thrived precisely because the city was in decline, during a time when the most creative and innovative people were drawn to the Lower East Side for its edginess, its cheap rents, and its debauchery. Some people today still think of this very fondly like a long-forgotten shrine. It's most likely best known to the younger generation, of course, for its t-shirts, emblazoned with that very recognizable logo that used to be displayed on the awning that hung right out front. So let's get our hands dirty here, looking at the history of CBGB. That opening music was, of course, Blondie with the song Ex Offender from their first album, self-titled Blondie. I had to cut the spoken word part out of it because I didn't want you to think that Deborah Harry was here in the studio with me to help record the podcast, but that would be awesome. The full name of the club I'm about to speak about is actually CBGB OMFUG for country, bluegrass, blues, and other music for uplifting gourmandizers. According to the dictionary, a gourmandizer is somebody who overeats or eats immodestly, makes a pig of oneself. CBGBs would serve up music, not food, well, not mostly food, but the theme of indulgence and decadence could certainly apply to this place. 
The club was located at 315 Broadway and was open from December of 1973 until November of 2006, a run of almost 33 years. Today, I guess controversially for some, the main room of what used to be that old club is the home of a fashion boutique for designer John Vervados. Next door in the room of what used to be called the CBGB Gallery is today home to one location of the music photography gallery Morrison Hotel. For much of the 20th century, 315 Bowery was just another one of a string of unspectacular buildings known for containing flop houses, taverns, brothels, and gambling dens. At 295 Bowery, so just a few doors down, that was known as McGurk's Suicide Hall, a grog house and brothel from 1895 that was known as a place where destitute prostitutes would sometimes end their lives, either by poison or leaping off the roof. At 315, well, it was, for most of its existence, a depressed flophouse by the name of the Palace Hotel, an unsavory destination for ne'er-do-wells, a building that would be described by one neighborhood activist as being weighed with, quote, the residue of 50 years of squalor and an era of extreme debauchery. The downstairs Palace Bar catered to drunkards, who would line up first thing in the morning for their morning cup of intoxication. Now, the Bowery, as you all know, has classically been on the edge of respectability. But by the late 1960s, the financial fortunes of New York City had grown rather grim, and nowhere in the city was that reflected more than here on the Bowery, Manhattan's Skid Row, the epicenter of homelessness and urban blight. If you hit rock bottom, you were hitting the Bowery. The rock music scene in the early 1970s was beginning to bottom out as well. During the 1960s, the heart of music innovation was West, in Greenwich Village, the boom of the folk music movement, fostering artists like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez in venues like Gertz Folk City, or out, of course, in Washington Square Park. In the mid-1960s, folk music met Psychedelica and the happenings of Andy Warhol to produce bands like the Velvet Underground, who would perform at the Electric Circus on St. Mark's Place, or would go gallivanting over at Max's Kansas City by Union Square. You, of course, had these huge music venues in this time period for great out-of-town rock acts to perform. Most notably, you had Bill Graham's Fillmore East, which opened in 1968 and would host bands like Jefferson Airplane and the Allman Brothers. The winds of 60s rebellion and hippie culture kept a lot of these places in business. But by the early 70s, however, that wind was definitely dying down. Both the Fillmore and Electric Circus closed in 1971. Maxis began to represent a little bit more high glamour and celebrity, and less reflected New York's native rock music scene. I'm not saying there weren't some flashes of music creativity in the early 70s, but as an inspiration for rock and roll, generally, New York was trailing new rock sounds from the UK and the West Coast. But there were some significant musicians in the city at this time. The New York Dolls were importing US glam rock and churning it out of their basements in the Bronx and Staten Island. But the defining moment in the history of 1970s rock music would lay on the shoulders of a very unlikely candidate, a former Marine and a member of a men's chorus group, and this guy's name was Hilly Crystal. Now, Crystal was born in New York in 1931. He eventually pursued opera and vocal music. He dabbled playing folk music in Greenwich Village clubs, and eventually even sang bass as part of a men's chorus at Radio City Music Hall, serenading alongside the Rockettes. Now, figuring the spotlight wasn't for him, Crystal decided to manage music venues instead, and as fortune would have it, in 1959, he began working at the renowned hotspot, The Village Vanguard, a place that's still open today and a great spot to hear jazz music. He would be doing quite nicely for himself, actually, by the mid-1960s. He would open his own village restaurant, bar, cabaret place in 1966, a place he would call Hilly's on 9th Street. Hilly's would be a frequent performance space for a young Bette Midler, and Here's a fun fact. His collaborator at Hilly's on 9th Street was a Catholic priest. 
Later, he would open a second place called Hilly's on West 13th Street. He also began collaborating on a series of Central Park outdoor concerts in 1968, all sponsored by Rheingold Beer, concerts which took place at Woolman Rink. The first headline, actually, in 1968 being The Who. In 1969, Crystal looked at the vast skid row that Bowery had become and saw not just the homelessness, but an opportunity to debut something kind of experimental. New York's underground art scene was already embedded there, and the musicians and writers, the very edges of New York creativity, were already making the streets of the Lower East Side their home. So he thought, why not? He rented that space on the ground floor of that loathsome palace flophouse I told you about. He rented that for $600 a month, and then opened Hilly's on the Bowery in December of 1969. From the sound of it, it's essentially just a branch of his West Village location, and it didn't do so well. It actually appealed more to the Bowery derelicts of the time than the art scene. It seemed he needed to be a little bit more explicit in his intentions, obviously. So one day, in December of 1973, Crystal, with his firm-handed wife Karen behind the bar, well, he renamed the place to the aforementioned Country, Bluegrass, Blues, and Other Music for Uplifting Gormandizers. He threw the initials of his new venture on a very simple awning that he placed above the door and reopened the place as a venue for new bands to come try out original music, which is actually kind of an oddity in the day when most live bands at this time played covers of other songs. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, would it work? The venue really wasn't that much to look at, frankly. CBGB's main room was long and cramped, and the black walls would eventually, over time, would be covered in an almost unrecognizable pastiche of posters and stickers. From the entranceway, you paid your admission, you squeezed past this area, which actually served as Crystal's own office during the day. You squeezed down that slim corridor. On your right was this old warped bar, dated actually back all the way to the 1920s, and essentially came with the place when Crystal bought it. Straight ahead of you was this spindly stage, originally to the side of the room, but Crystal moved it to the very back just a few years later. It would eventually be reinforced with several layers to make sure no one fell through it. And beyond that stage, of course, were what would become probably the most infamous bathrooms in New York, a dingy space where a great many debaucherous things would eventually happen. Now, the club may have been advertised country and bluegrass, and maybe at first Hilly thought he could actually keep the promise of his awning. In fact, on the roster of that first night in December, one group who performed that night was called the Wretched Refuse String Band. It would be a very different style of music that would get the scrappy little club off the ground, or to quote Hilly himself, I didn't discover punk. Punk discovered me. 
It started with the Lower East Side group Television, whose members wandered by CBGB's one day while Hilly was actually up on a ladder in front of the club. According to legend, according to Crystal himself, they begged to perform here. They weren't country, they weren't blues, and so famously became the very first rock group to perform here in March of 1974. A few months later, perhaps even more fortuitously, Hilly agreed to let a newly formed quartet from Queens perform here. Now, the band couldn't play their instruments very well. The lead singer was very strange looking, and most of their songs were about two minutes long. In fact, according to Hilly's own review of their first show in August 16th of 1974, quote, They were the most untogether group I'd ever heard. They kept starting and stopping, equipment breaking down, and yelling at each other. They were a mess, unquote. But for some reason, he stuck with them, and that band, the Ramones, would eventually play dozens of times at CBGB's, not only defining the sound of the New York punk scene, but making sure that Hilly's Little Club would be on the forefront. Something unusual was happening at CBGB's, and soon other bands started to make a name for themselves on Hilly's stage. A group called the Stilettos, who threw a bunch of rock sounds in with the girl group vibe. Well, a couple of their founding members, Chris Stein and a wild blonde by the name of Deborah Harry, they tinkered around with the personnel of the group, and then they changed the name, and eventually they debuted as Blondie in the summer of 1975. In a documentary on CBGBs that I actually found on Netflix and watched a couple months ago, Chrissy actually told a story about walking into a broom closet one evening and finding Chris and Deborah Harry there, quote, making love inside of the broom closet. The demeanor here, as you can imagine, um, was not quite Carnegie Hall. Blondie would go on to, of course, become the most successful graduate of the CBGB's class, but a lot of famous and influential musicians would cut their teeth here and cut other stuff here. A group of former RISD students, that would be students from the Rhode Island School of Design, well, they had moved down to New York to make it big. They moved down to Christie Street in the Lower East Side, as a matter of fact, and they decided to form an odd band that was one of Crystal's favorite, in fact, to book at the club. For their first show on June 8th, 1975, Crystal gave this band, who called themselves the Talking Heads, a prime spot opening for the Ramones, who, of course, by this year were packing them into the club. Meanwhile, a wispy brunette and a regular scenester over at the Chelsea Hotel, a woman by the name of Patty Smith, would start opening for this group television that same year. All of these artists were collectively developing a sound, the American version of punk, and would later be instrumental in developing in the late 70s sound of New Wave. The UK version of punk, of course, would make a few appearances here. In fact, Crystal would actually throw out Sex Pistols lead singer Sid Vicious. Twice, in fact. Once for drunkenly throwing a beer mug at somebody. CBGBs would soon grow in popularity and seemed to hang on. In fact, it seemed to thrive despite the withering fortunes of the city. The closing of other rock venues, like Max's Kansas City, for instance, this only seemed to raise CBGB's profile, not only with bands, not only with the fans of these bands, but with record labels, who would troll Hilly's schedule for the next discovery. And I cannot stress this enough, this is the mid-1970s on the Bowery. 
I would in no way call the neighborhood safe by any current standards we enjoy here in New York City. Over on CBGB's blog, which I'll tell you about a little bit later, there's actually a brief history of the club that Hilly himself wrote. It's a total must-read. The entire website, in fact, is a must-read. But Hilly casually mentions at one point that during the early years, he collected over three dozen knives that he happened to take from patrons. All the while, keep in mind, the city streets of New York were tapping to the beat of a different sound, disco music. CBGBs would embody the anti-disco front back in the days when people frequently took sides on the issue, even though artists like Blondie actually straddled both forms of music quite nicely. By the 1980s, disco did in fact die, at least for a little while, but CBGBs would continue thriving. By Crystal's own estimation, CBGBs would eventually, over the years, host over 50,000 sets from thousands of artists. It would expand from the new wave and punk sounds to the alternative album rock of the late 80s and early 90s, and by that time it was already well known as an iconic music scene. Artists from the Beastie Boys and the B-52s in the early 80s to bands later like Guns N' Roses. They would all make their mark on the club, which over the years would become warped and very lovingly claustrophobic, with leaky pipes cluttered walls, that bathroom, a survivor of a nightclub, weathering even through a boom of major clubs that happened in the 1980s. In one sense, it was also becoming a tourist attraction. T-shirts emblazoned with the name would, according to Crystal himself, be the only substantial way the club ever really turned a profit, according to him. It's true that the bar was never seriously renovated, and that cover charges were, on average, rather low for the day. And perhaps that's why it could still lay claim to an underground independent spirit, because in the 1980s and 90s, it actually became the treasure destination of hardcore punk and thrash metal bands. In particular, Sunday Matinee would mean something quite different here than it would be on Broadway, featuring bands like Bad Brains, Agnostic Front, and the Reagan Youth. The scene underneath the beaten, bruised awning outside would of course reflect these changes. The tragic conditions of the Bowery would be electrified by this time with mohawks, multicolored hairstyles, and new wave and punk fashion. It would become so associated with that sound that Crystal would have to open a second room next door, the CBGB Gallery, that would host more acoustic, less speaker-shattering shows on an intimate stage. There would be artwork on the walls, and the bathrooms were a touch cleaner. In a word, we might describe it as classy. He would also open a downstairs lounge for spoken word performances, and in the late 1990s, he would even branch off to make a boutique record label, signing such acts as The Asian Mushroom and Molotov Cocktail. Of course, not every single one of Hilly's schemes were a success, like the attempt at a CBGB's pizza parlor in 1969, quote, with chili pizza made by Hilly himself, unquote. It's interesting to imagine what the club would have been like today with the resurgence and the regentrification of the Bowery, well, most of the Bowery. Instead of enjoying that, CBGBs actually became one of gentrification's first victims. By 2005, Crystal's rent had risen from the original $600 a month to $19,000 a month, and his landlord, the Bowery Residence Committee, pressed him on some of this unpaid back rent. Despite several fundraisers, despite efforts to have the place landmarked, and public entreaties by many of the famous names that performed here, Crystal agreed to close the club on October 15th of 2006. The last performance was, appropriately, one of the club's most successful acts, Patti Smith. She ended a very sorrowful night of music by reading off a not insubstantial list of former CBGB's performers who had passed away. Sadly, Crystal himself didn't live much longer past this. He died on August 28th, 2007 of lung cancer. 
While the physical space is now a clothing store, as I mentioned, for John Vervados, which is really, really trying hard to be respectful, CBGB's The Club lives on virtually. Their website, cbgb.com, is fantastic. They have a regular blog. And also, for all the things that we talk about, there's something that we just, I wish I could share with all of our listeners, but you can actually see it on cbgb.com, a 360 walkthrough of the club. It's actually really fun to kind of play around with it. You can sort of virtually take a few steps into the club and you can even go down to the bathrooms. In fact, you start your tour on the bathrooms. I'm not sure what that's saying. So head on down to the Bowery and stand in front of John Vervados and imagine what it was like just a few years ago. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have some photographs of the place itself and some of the people who performed there. Tom will be back in two weeks. We'll have another full-length episode for you. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.